Well, good morning. How are y'all? Good. Good Hello. morning. Hello. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. Hey. A little hot. Um, so we are so excited that you guys are here this morning. We know that there are about a million and one things that you could be doing on a Saturday morning, and we're thrilled that you're here and that you're choosing to learn about the Bible. Um, my name is Rachel Smith, and I represent the non-staffers uh, for this talk up here, um, but I am a stay-at-home mom of three kids. Uh, my husband is... Uh, and I've been married for ten and a half years. I have a five-year-old. Oh, no, he's six. Y'all, today, today, he's six. He's six today. It's his birthday, so he's six today. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And this is Nish and Clarissa, and they're going to introduce themselves, and then we'll get started. Yeah. Hi, my name is Nish Huddlestone, and I am originally from California and moved out to Texas about four years ago. I was living in Fort Worth for a few years, working for a ministry out there and moved to Dallas in August to start the residency program here at Watermark. So I serve specifically with the equipping team. So if anybody goes to women's Bible study, maybe it's a familiar face. And I work in the coffee shop downstairs. So have loved being at Watermark and am excited for this morning. Yeah, Awesome. And I'm Clarissa Norell. I'm a director for single adult women's community here. Um, and so if you're in community, you might be in a group under me, not sure. Um, but uh, welcome. We're so glad you're here and we're so excited to get to share with you um, about these wonderful women in scripture. And trust me, this is just, I mean, a very, very small number of what you really could, could look into in scripture. So with that, um, let me open us up in prayer and then we'll get started. Uh, dear Heavenly Father... Just thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to get to come together, Lord, and study your word. Um, I thank you, Father, for all of these ladies that are here. Um, and I thank you just that, um, that they would give up their Saturday morning to come and just learn more about you and more about um, your love for women. And so, Father, I pray that they would walk away uh, just with something new, um, that they can hold on to, Lord, um, that they would know your character more, that they would know your love for them more, Father. And um, I just pray uh, just that you would speak through us during this time and that you would use this for your glory. We love you and ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so um, we are going to talk today about the women of the Bible. Some housekeeping things before we get started. Um, we are going to go through the Old and the New Testament. We have eight women total that we're going to talk about. Um, five are Old Testament, three okay. are New Testament, and we're going to split, um, and we're going to have a break right in between the Old and the New. It makes sense, right? So um, a couple of housekeeping things. When you, If you need to go to the restroom, if you go out that door and then to the left down the hall, there's a restroom there. There are refreshments on the third floor, so you would go upstairs, and if you would like lots of refreshments, there's some fruit and drinks and fun things. And um, just help yourself to that, and um, yeah, I think that that's pretty much it. So before we get started this morning into the women, I wanted to talk just for a couple of minutes about um, just some three foundational things um, about the role of women in the Bible. Um, the first one is one that we can find in Genesis one twenty seven, which is just that women were created in the image of God. It talks that that verse actually says um, God created them, man and woman, in his image. And so um, it's, it's just important that we recognize that God created man and that he created woman and that there's not one that is superior or one that is 
inferior because they're both created in the image of God. The second thing we wanted to talk to you guys about is that God gave women a special role, and it's it's a different role for men. It's a complementary role, and um, kind of the the like the image that I get of this is if you guys do you guys know about the game Jenga? Like, is this familiar to you? The game Jenga. Okay, so if you can picture the game Jenga, but to where it's just. Um, you know, maybe with like 10 or 15 pieces different or removed. And I think that's kind of when God created man, he created man as an incomplete Jenga game, right? And so then there were times where the Lord said, okay, this is a weakness here. This is a place that we need to fortify. This is where we um, need to add strength here. This is where we need to add some aspect or care of, of character that, that this guy didn't have. And then in those pieces, all of those pieces were created together and, and we got Eve. And in the beginning, when we talk about Adam and Eve, you look at them as, as a husband and wife, but we'll look later and see that um, God doesn't favor married women over single women or divorced women, that God loves the whole gamut of women. And we'll see that in the New Testament later on when we talk about some of those women. Um, but the role and the purpose that he gave woman, that he gave Eve in the garden was helper. And the Hebrew word for that is ezer. And ezer means um, it's, it's helper, it's aid. And, um, I think a lot of times, um, probably to our fault in a lot of churches across the United States, we have kind of translated helper to be assistant or, um, um, I mean, if you go to the very extreme, I think sometimes it's doormat. And I think that that is not the picture that we see in the old Testament. The old Testament, that word is there shows up 16 times, um, 14 of those 16 times, God is referring to an attribute of himself, not of Eve. And so if you can kind of put that together and say, okay, God created woman to be an Azer, to be a helper. But there, most of the time when God uses that word, Azer, it is actually referring to himself. So we know that God is not going to create himself inferior to anything. And so if you can take that and translate that then to the role of the woman, is that that Azer word is not meant to be a word that is used um, synonymously with inferiority, that God has a purpose and a plan for women, they're, they're, and their purpose and plan is different. They're, men and women are made differently, obviously we know that, and, and that it wasn't ever seen or meant to be that God would say, you are superior to you, you are inferior to her. I feel like there's that verse in Ephesians that gets talked, tossed about a lot where wives submit to your husbands, but the picture there, even if you go back to Ephesians and you look at what the actual picture there, it's that both husband and wife are supposed to be on their faces in front of the Lord in submission saying, God, we want to do what you want us to do. Yes, he's my leader, but at the same time, it's, if you can, again, picture that Jenga, the woman has a specific role and a specific place in the husband's life, but also in the life of the church and in the life of the whole span of human history. And so um, some of the verses where we see the word Ezer are um, Psalm ten fourteen, you have been the helper of the fatherless. Psalm thirty ten, hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper. Um, the one in Deuteronomy thirty three twenty six, there is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help or to your Ezer, and through the skies his majesty. Now, we also see that Jesus affirms this when he goes into the Greek, because the Hebrew, uh, Old Testament is written in Hebrew, New Testament is written in Greek, and Jesus then goes and uses a, the equivalent word, and I'm going to, y'all, this is, a, I'm not going to say this right, but parakletos um, is used, and uh, it, that is used for, in John fourteen sixteen. then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate 
to be with you forever. That word that we translate in our word as advocate or helper there is talking about the Holy Spirit. And that's the word that is, is synonymous with the Old Testament word that God gave for the role of women. And so the, the helper. John fourteen twenty six. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will spend in my na- send in my name, excuse me, will teach you everything and will cause you to remember everything I said to you. John fifteen twenty six. When the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And then there's it, it keeps going. John sixteen seven. There are some other things. So um, according to that, what we can take from that is that women have a unique role. We have a purpose. And what we hope that you guys are going to learn today is um, that not only do we have a unique role and purpose, but um, in that, God created unique personalities. God created unique facets to who we are and that those things are just as valid as, as men. And I think that I'm probably overshooting here because I feel like to some degree we've overshot um, the subservient role of women for a really long time. So just know that women are treasured in the eyes of the Lord, um, that women are loved, and that we are not um, God's plan B when a woman is used, that God has put women in their certain places and in their times and in Scripture. He didn't mess up. He wasn't like, oh, man, that guy went and did something awful. Who am I going to grab? Well, she's available. I guess I'll use her. Like, that's not, the, that's not the, the framework that we need to look at these women. We need to look at these women and say, God was strategic in placing these women in these Scriptures for this time. And so if that kind of helps, that's kind of the framework for which we hope that you would hear the rest of everything that we're going to talk about. So we are going to get started, and I'm going to talk about Deborah. Now, Deborah is a very strong personality in the Bible. Her story is found in Judges 4 and 5, and there's a slide for her, um, for Deborah. Um, And um, one more thing I forgot to say a minute ago, but um, Deborah is a very strong personality. We don't see very many, like, strong personalities in the Bible when women are pictured. I think to some degree we kind of you know, we herald like the Proverbs 31 woman, and we talk about women being meek and mild, and, and, um, but that's not the picture that we see of Deborah. Deborah is like this bold, confident woman, and for that reason, I kind of identify with her. Um, I more often stick my foot in my mouth than I am meek and mild. I'm more like the one that's like, yeah, let's go. Oh, probably shouldn't have said that. So I identify with Deborah. I totally understand um, what she is going through. She's a very confident, very strong woman, she is a judge for Israel. She was married. She is a judge for Israel. So she was um, a Jewish judge. So what that means is that she sat under a tree and people brought their um, arguments to her and then she would interpret the law that was given at that time and say, and, and make a ruling and then they had to live with their ruling. And so what that means is that she was placed in a leadership role over men. And that's interesting. And I've, I imagine at this time, like can, to give you guys some context, women um, at this time were really only seen as um, vehicles through which men could expand their kingdom through children. Like that was really how there was not like this, this idea that we have now of like loving women well and honoring them. And you know, like where a husband would take care of the kids for a while. So mom can just have a break. Like this is, this is not, that's not the, the culture of the day. So it would have been very insulting, um, to a lot of these men to have to live with their ruling coming down from Deborah. And so just, if you can kind of think about that from her perspective, you know, she's sitting, and she knows that she is a judge and she knows that the Lord has appointed that, but there are going to be lots of whispers about her. There are going to be times when men are going to walk away grumbling and she is going to have to turn to the Lord and say, okay, did I do that right? Did I honor your name well? And so to some degree, just by, by um, necessity of her role, she had to walk in an intimacy with the Lord and a closeness with the Lord that gave her the confidence and the boldness to speak what she knew that the Lord was telling her. 
Um, she was also named as a prophetess in um, Judges 4, which means that she um, was just like, like the prophets that we know about that are really popular, like her from Old um, Old Testament or like Jonah is someone that's really popular. Like he was given a message and I don't know if any of you are VeggieTales fans, but oh my goodness, we've watched VeggieTales Jonah a lot. But um, so he was given a message for this town called Nineveh that was not in Israel and it was a really bad town, like not a good place to go. And he basically just told the Lord no. And the Lord was like, okay, so I'm going to put you in the sea. I'm going to let a big whale swallow you. I'm going to let you live in the belly of the whale for three days. And then that whale is going to spit you out on the beach at Nineveh. And you're going to have to go and give the message that the Lord gave. So really a a prophet of that day was just someone who heard from the Lord and then accurately and faithfully delivered the message that was given to them. And so it was really how they communicated with the Lord because this was Old Testament before they had the Holy Spirit to remind them of things. So there are only 10 prophetesses listed in the Bible. Five of them are in the Old Testament. Five of them are in the New Testament. So this, um, this woman is not here by accident. We see that the Lord is very purposeful for her. Um, and so just, I love Deborah. I just love her. I think that she is just, um, just by nature of her role and responsibility in Israel, she's very, she has to be very bold and very confident. So um, I'm going to go and I'm going to read just a little bit of her story from Judges 4. And give you guys kind of a little back backstory. So, um, King Ehud or Ehud um, was the king before um, where we're coming into, and there had been peace under his reign. There had actually been peace in Israel for eighty years. Um, and one of the reasons why they think that there was peace in Israel at that time is because Ehud had faithfully removed all of the idols from the people of Israel. And so they, at least on a surface level, were worshiping the Lord. And so then we come in, and um, the people of Israel do what they do best, and they messed it up again. And um, in verse, in Judges 4, verse 1, it says, the people of Israel again did what was evil on the side of the Lord after Ehud died. Um, so they, their hearts weren't necessarily changed. Their actions were changed. So at the surface, they were, they were obeying the Lord, and they were faithful to him. But their hearts still had this evil bent that we all know. Um, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. Um, the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Um, and notice there that they cried out for the Lord for help, but they did not necessarily want to submit to the Lord. They were like, hey, 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 we don't want this evil guy. They weren't saying, come be our God again. We've submit and we repent and we're wrong. What they were just saying was, please help us. And so then enter in Deborah. I love this. Um, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. He had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And they're talking then about Jabin. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidus, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and sh- summoned, um, if you're reading this, that's Barak, not Barak, although it looks very familiar to us, the son of Abinuam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general from Jabin's army. So Sisera, just to give you a little backstory, he's like a bad dude. And he's, even though Jabin is their king at this point, like Sisera was the one who was really um, torturing the people at this time, who was really doing evil things. And he kind of was the mastermind, if that makes sense. Um, so uh, she, Deborah said that the Lord would draw out 
Sisera, the commander, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river in Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And so that's really the Lord speaking. That's not Deborah saying that. And so she's basically saying like, um, hello, what happened? Like the Lord told you that he was going to do something. Why are you still here? Right? And so I, I love that because she's just like, like, what's up? And she had to go and confront a man, which would have not been the place of a woman at the time. And so this, I love this. This guy goes, okay, I'll go, but you have to come with me. Okay. And she's like, okay, I'll go with you. But um, she said in verse nine, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory for the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. And I, I love that. Basically what she's saying is, all right, but you're going to get whooped by a girl. And it's like, you know, she's kind of taunting him at this point. Like I'll go, but you, but you got to know that this is not going to be given, like credit is not going to be yours here. And so um, basically they go and um, he again says it again later on in the, in the verses. He says, I'll, I'll go, but you have to go with me. And she's like, dude, like man up, be a man, go and do this. The Lord has already said that he would deliver this man into your hands, that, that this man will be, will be, will, that we won't have to deal with him anymore because the Lord is going to give him into your hands. You're going to be able to take care of him. And so um, you just see kind of this guy that um, seems to kind of be like um, hiding behind her, you know, like I'll go, but you know, like go with me and go before me and take care of me. Almost like um, he thinks that she's the good luck charm. She's like this magic, you know, rabbit's foot that she can rub. And he's, she's like, you do not understand this. And so basically to the end of the story is that and they do go, the Lord does draw out Sisera, um, and the hand of the woman that she's talking about um, is actually not her hand. Um, there's this other woman that comes into the story in a little bit. Her name is J.L., and she... Um, this guy, this Cicera goes into this tent and she's there and he's like, oh, I'm so, I've been fleeing from this army. Can you just give me something to eat? Can you give me something to drink? And she's like, mm-hmm. Yeah, you go on and rest. And then she takes a tent peg <clears throat> and drives it into his head. And so like the hand of the woman is not Deborah, it's actually Jael, but it is a woman who kills Cicera instead of um, Barak. So um, what we can learn about Deborah from this is that the Lord had placed her at a certain time to do a certain task, and there was no one else that could do it. That there were, God honored her and said, this is what I need you to do. And what we see about her is that, yes, she's faithful, but she's bold and she's confident. And when I say faithful, it's not like she's, like I think sometimes when I picture the word faithful, what I picture is someone kind of wringing their hands and saying, okay, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I trust you. And that's not what I mean in this context. What I mean is that the Lord told her to do something. She faithfully did what the Lord told her to do. And she was bold and confident in that message. And so, um, so what do we learn about God? Um, that God uses those who are faithful to him, and it does not matter whether they are male or female. Um, if the Lord has called you up to do something, he is going to equip you, and he is going to faithfully um, lead you where he wants you to go, and he'll keep his promises. We see that God is somebody who says, listen, I told you that I would take care of this man, that he would not lead over you and, and be horrible to you for that long, and I've taken care of him. It just ha- so happens that the way that I took care of him was in Deborah faithfully um, getting him, fleshing him out by scaring him with all these people coming after him, and then that Jael was there to, you know, drive a stake through his head. Um, and so women, even in leadership, can be helpers to men. We see that that Azera word comes up here, where Deborah is saying to Barak, 
listen, you have been given a role and a responsibility too. You need to fulfill your, your role. I will fulfill my role. And we need to do this together because the Lord has called us to this. She was trusting in the Lord um, for her very life, literally, um, in this circumstance. But she still was a helper to him. She was the one who gave him the bravery and the courage to go and to do what the Lord had called him to do. And so we see a picture of Deborah that is bold, that is strong, um, and that has utmost confidence, not in her ability to deliver messages and to judge rightly, but she is bold and strong because she trusts that the Lord is who he says he is, will do what he says he will do to the point where she is willing to go and call out a man in this day and say, hey, the Lord told you to do something. He is faithful to his promises. He's told you that he will deliver this man into your hands and that we will no longer be slaves to him, that we will no longer be tortured by him. So go and do what the Lord has told you to do. And she's um, in that way, even then was a helper to a man. So um, we see that she was very, very strong and very, very courageous and bold. Um, and now Nisha's going to come up and talk about Hannah. And I love the story of Hannah to the point where I named my daughter Hannah. So I'm very excited about this. And I think you're going to see maybe the opposite end of the female spectrum there. So Nish, come on up. Hello, there I am. Thanks, Rachel. All right. Like I said, my name is Nish, and uh, just so you know, that is not my real name. Uh, my real name is Nicole, so you may have been expecting, I don't know, someone to look a little different than when you hear Nish. But uh, my freshman year of high school, my friends and I decided to go by our initials, and mine are NSH. And somehow it turned into niche, added two E's in there, and it actually has vowels now. So I feel like I needed to get that out there before uh, we continue. So I'm not lying to you, although I would never do that. Uh, so like Rachel said, I'm going to be speaking about Hannah. And moving forward, I would love for you to remember these three words when I'm talking about Hannah. And those three words are gracious, trusting, and faithful. Gracious, trusting, and faithful. Um, the other day, I encountered something in my neighborhood that really put into perspective how I often view my life in contrast to how Hannah viewed her life. And I'll explain the story, and it'll make a little bit more sense. But I was walking through my neighborhood with my dog, and about two blocks away, I saw this father with his son uh, standing on the corner. They were having a little lemonade stand, and the father was very clearly, patiently, and almost quietly trying to discipline his son, and that was one of his sons, and the other son was walking away from that corner, and you could tell that there was some type of conversation happening between the dad and the son, and then all of a sudden, that boy yelled out very loudly, and he said, it's my lemonade stand. It's my rules. And as I walked past this and tried not to pay too much attention, I realized that that boy at the lemonade stand was upset because his brother had come in and tried to change the rules and tried to change his plan for his lemonade stand. And so you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Hannah? Um, hopefully, it will be clear in just a little bit. So for my time up here, we are actually going to be reading through 1 Samuel. So if you have, not the entire book, that would take way too long. Uh, but if you do have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Samuel. We will be mainly in chapter 1. And just uh, so you know, it's important 
to recognize that during this time, Israel is not living under the rule of kings, but as Rachel said, is living under the rule of judges. And 1 Samuel talks about Israel's initial request for a king, the establishment of that king being Saul, and then the ultimate downfall of that king, king's reign, and then it leads to King David. Um, One commentator wrote, in Samuel, we have a record of how commitment to the will of God results in blessing for individuals, groups of individuals, and whole nations. So this all matters because Samuel, who Hannah gives birth to, so spoiler alert if you didn't know that already, but um, Samuel is the final judge and prophet who anointed the first two kings of Israel. So as we will see, Hannah's faithfulness will not only affect her, but it will ultimately affect Israel as well, and that her trust in God is not misplaced. So if everybody is in 1 Samuel, I will um, just read a little bit from this passage. So uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Sophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathi. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. So what we learn from these two verses is that Hannah was married to Elkanah, and he was also married to another woman named Panina. Panina was able to bear children, but Hannah was not. And during this time, barrenness and not being able to have children was um, not only seen as a natural handicap, but also could be viewed as a curse from God. And so this is our first introduction into what Hannah has to deal with on a daily basis. Later on in the passage, it mentions that Penina um, actually provokes Hannah grievously to irritate her because of her barrenness. And one commentator said that Penina may have accused Hannah of some sin in her life that had apparently brought God's curse on her. From the context, we learn that Hannah was an unusually godly woman. Probably her barrenness was not a divine punishment for sin. It appears to have been a natural condition that God placed on her for his own purposes, some of which will become clear as the story unfolds. So reading that um, brought some clarity uh, to this passage for me. And so it says that this was happening year by year, so it was repetitive, it was continuing on. Um, So Hannah was experiencing this often. And what was Hannah's response? She wept and she would not eat, it says. But this is also where we see the first characteristic of Hannah, which is gracious. Hannah was gracious. She did not shoot back insults. She did not respond in anger, but was gracious in her interactions with the woman who was provoking her, who was um, taunting her, and ultimately had what she wanted. And so we see Hannah in that light. And then continuing on in the passage, we learn that Elkanah goes up to Shiloh every year to offer sacrifices and to worship the Lord of hosts. And the title, uh, Lord of hosts, is just a reminder and to, making it, to make it very clear that God has infinite resources and power at his disposal as he fights for his people. And so we know that Elkanah goes up to Shiloh, offers sacrifices there to the Lord of hosts. And then in verse Uh, Starting in verse 4, it says, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Then jumping down to verse 8, 
It says, and Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I more to you than ten sons? So what we see from this part of the passage is that Elkanah is going to God, who ultimately was the one who had closed Hannah's womb, and he really is trying to take matters into his own hands and to offer up a double portion for Hannah, his barren wife, and then questions her why he is not sufficient enough for her needs. And like, in the old, or like the number seven in the Old Testament, the number 10 often symbolizes and represents an ideal number. And so Elkanah asking this question of Hannah wasn't necessarily saying, am I not better than 10 children, which is a lot of children. That's quite an abundance. But he is comparing that to basically saying, am I not ideal? Is this not the ideal situation? Are you not satisfied with where you're at? But Hannah knows that she is ultimately satisfied in the Lord and not her situation. We know that Elkanah is not trusting God with the situation that has been given to Hannah, that he is concerned more with the family structure instead of putting trust in his heavenly father, which is in direct contrast to the next characteristic we see of Hannah, which is trusting. She has been put into a life circumstance which is not desirable or one that she necessarily wants, but still she trusts in the Lord. So then we learn that Hannah is trusting. Now going down to verses 10 and 11, um, it says, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So in a time of deep distress and trouble, Hannah turns to the Lord and is faithful to pray to him which is the next characteristic we learn about Hannah, that she is faithful. And not only that, but she makes a vow to the Lord for where she says that if he gives her a son, then he will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And looking at that now, that would be somewhat similar to um, praying for your child to maybe go into full-time ministry and just surrendering them to the Lord in that way. And Hannah, in this, wanted to make a godly contribution to the leadership of Israel. She wasn't concerned about um, getting her accusers away or avoiding what uh, really that taunting that she had been experiencing for so many years. But she wanted to honor Lord, honor the Lord with that decision of bearing or that opportunity to bear children. So in this moment, um, the passage says that Eli the priest saw her and took her to be a drunken woman, but she assures them, him that she had not been drinking, but instead had been pouring her heart out to the Lord. Then in verse 17, it says, Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. So after this interaction with Eli, Hannah's response was no longer sad, and her and Elkanah rose early in the morning and worshipped the Lord. And then they returned home, And later on at the end of verse 19, it says, And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So not only was Hannah faithful to pray to the Lord in her time of need, but she was also faithful to fulfill her vow as she made in that time. And ending with verses 27 through 28, and still in chapter 1, it says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. 
Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And then in chapter 2, verse 21, it says, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So in learning that Hannah is gracious, trusting, and faithful, we also learn many things about God, which is also on that slide. But specifically, we learn that he hears us when we cry to him. Verse 19 says that the Lord remembered her. We also learn that he helps the weak and makes them strong. Hannah is seen by maybe the world standards in this situation as weak, yet he gives her the strength to remain in the place he has her in order to show his purpose for her life. He gives her the strength to remain in the place he has her in order to show his purpose for her life. And lastly, we learn that God uses grief and trials to accomplish great things. Hannah's faithfulness and trust ultimately led to Samuel growing in the presence of the Lord, which led him to being the final judge and prophet, which impacted Israel and us today. So God used Hannah's heartache for Israel's history. So what does that mean for the women in this room for the women that we know in our families, our friends, in our workplaces, what does that mean for us today? And now I will go back to the Lemonade Stand story, so I'm not leaving you hanging. But when I heard the little boy say, it's my Lemonade Stand, it's my rules, I realized that this is often how I view my own life. I think this is my life, it's my rules. I want things to happen my way. I want to get married, I want to have this job, I want this person to like me for this reason. I want to move to this place at this time. I want to have kids. Really just fill in the blank and the list goes on. Now these wants are not the problem, but the problem is I know that sometimes I see my life as my own and instead of completely surrendering them to he who is trustworthy, I take hold of those desires and I put my trust in those desires. But... We cannot put trust in our desires. We must put trust in the one who knows our desires. We cannot put trust in our own desires, but we must put trust in he who knows our desires. And God knows our desires. He knows us. As Rachel said, we've all been created uniquely and so um, different than one another, yet he knows us so intimately, and he knows every one of our desires. Psalm 139 says that he has searched us, and he knows us, and we can find comfort in that. So just to close, I wanted to ask a few questions that um, hopefully you can take some time later on today to reflect, or later this week, and um, yeah, just spend some time with the Lord in these questions. But are you viewing your life as your own, or are you surrendering it to the Lord and being faithful to trusting him with it? Are you viewing your life as your own, or are you surrendering it to the Lord and being faithful to trusting him with it? When faced with trials and your desires for this life not being met, how do you respond? And will you remain faithful and remember that God loves you? even if they are not met? And will you remain faithful and remember that God loves you, even if they are not met? 
And ultimately, how can you grow in your relationship with the Lord and your trust for him in the midst of waiting? How can you grow in your relationship with the Lord and trust in him in the midst of waiting? So God wants us to trust him with our desires, and he has given us Hannah as an example to look to for this. Hannah promised her son to God, which she bore from her body, for his purposes, because she knew who Samuel truly belonged to. And ultimately, Hannah wasn't remembered necessarily for how much faith she had, but she was remembered for who she has put her faith in, and that is ultimately who we are reminded of today. So next we will have Clarissa come up here and speak about Abigail. Okay, uh, real quickly before I get started talking about Abigail, raise your hand if you relate more to Deborah, or if, you, if or she just resonates with you. Okay, we have a couple of Deborahs. Yeah, I think that's good. Raise your hand if you resonate more with Hannah. A Hannah, a few Hannahs. Look, the Deborahs are like this, and the Hannahs are like this. <laughs> Which is so funny when we, when we kind of think about that. Um, yeah, I think we can probably all resonate with, you know, at least some traits, even if we're not, you know, even if that person isn't fully representative of us or, you know, we don't resonate with them fully. So now we're going to talk about Abigail. And what I would say about this story is Abigail is kind of a mix between both, okay? You're going to see in Abigail um, a certain gentleness, a certain meekness, but you're also going to see a side of her that's very bold and courageous. And so I like to think of her as kind of being right in the middle. Um, And so the story of Abigail comes from 1 Samuel 25. Um, I'm going to give you a second to turn there if you want to. Um, We're not going to read a lot directly from there, but you can have it in front of you. Um, So just to kind of fill you in a little bit on the story of Abigail before we dig into the details of it, Abigail was the wife, 1 Samuel 25. Yeah, 1 Samuel 25. So Abigail was the wife of a man named Nabal, and he was a very rich man. Uh, He was a Calebite, a descendant of Caleb. Um, And and the scripture says this specifically about Abigail, if you look at that in the scripture. Um, It says she was discerning and beautiful. And it says Nabal was harsh and badly behaved. And so they were complete opposites. She was a a woman who was godly, who was married to a man who was ungodly. And I think one of the lessons you're going to be able to take away from this is what that looks like when you are in a marriage with an ungodly man. And there is a reason why in his word in the New Testament, he says, do not yoke yourself with a non-believer. But... We know that this happens all the time. We also know that two non-believers will come together and somebody will come to know Christ. And um, you may be in a marriage that's like that. Um, But you will see how difficult this is for her um, not being equally yoked with her husband. So Nabal actually means fool. That's what it's translated to mean. It means that he's lacking in reason, which you'll see shortly. Um, So David and his followers, there was about 600 of them at the time, they were out in this wilderness of Paran. And they were there because Saul was looking to kill David because he was threatened by David because he knew that David was going to be a king. And so David was kind of hiding out in the wilderness with like 
a few of his closest friends. Like I said, there were 600. And they had been patrolling this wilderness um, and just came, hanging out there. But in the meantime, like they were protecting this area from other people's attacks. They were protecting it from uh, wildlife, you know, for, from lions and that sort of thing. And Nabal's shepherds were herding the flocks in that area. So Nabal was, you know, he was gaining something from that without even asking for that. It just so happened that David's men were there. And so David sent some of his men to Nabal and just said, hey, like, would you help provide food for me and my men? I know that sounds crazy. That's a lot of food, 600 people. But it was customary at the time from a man who was wealthy. It would, it would have been just a common courtesy for him to feed these men. Nabal, being um, the fool that he was, said, no, I don't, I don't want to share my food with you. Why should I? He was very insulting about it. And so the men went back to David and said, here's what he said, and he was very rude about it, and this is what happened. And so David, like, like a lot of us would, kind of overreacted in that moment and drew up 400 of these men and said, we're going to go kill all of Nabal's household, like all of the men in the household. I mean, a little bit maybe of an overreaction, but I mean, that's what he was going to do. And so Nabal's servant came to Abigail. He had to have known Abigail's character because he came to her and said, this is a really bad thing that Nabal has done, and I know that David's going to be angry and that he's probably going to come and, you know, kill us. And so, you know, Abigail, being a woman who had a lot of discernment, she thought about it. And she immediately, very hastily, began to make food for these men. And she did it. She didn't tell Nabal that she was going to do it, but she did it. And so, and then what she did is herself loaded all of this up and carried it out to these men. Now, can you imagine this woman on her own with no man with her, you know, to help her do this? She's set out to find David and she sees him on the road with 400 men and so she is so bold and courageous in this moment. I, I think I would have been terrified. And so this is kind of where we see just the really bold aspect of her. And what she did when she saw David is she fell down at his feet and she basically took full responsibility for her husband. Um, she, in fact, she said um, in verse 24, she said, "'On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt.'" And so she said, would you please take what I've brought you and would you please forgive me? Like she totally took responsibility for Nabal's actions. She was very self-sacrificial in that. And next you see um, basically the meekness and the wisdom that Abigail has as she proceeded uh, to help David view the situation from God's perspective. And she, you can kind of read a paragraph there where she basically reasons with him and she restrained him from innocent bloodshed. She really um, winsomely, uh, you know, basically reasoned with him. And as a result, David ended up blessing the Lord and thanking her and he spared Nabal and his family. And so she went home. Uh, when she got home, Nabal was drunk, and so she didn't want to tell him what happened in that moment. So she waited till the next morning until he was sober, and she told him what had happened, and he went into shock, like really went into shock. And the Lord took his life 10 days later. And so David thanked God for avenging the situation, and then because of the character that he saw in Abigail, he ended up marrying her. And so this is the story of Abigail. And there are a few things that I think we can note from the story. Um, I do love, as I mentioned earlier, just the aspect of her that is 
willing to sacrifice herself for a man that she was married to who had to have been incredibly difficult. You know, when we read about how harsh he was and how lacking in reason he was, and yet she was a faithful wife to this man and even stood up for him, uh, you know, took on his own sins on herself. Um, And so in some ways, we see her as a type of savior. Like she lays her life down, basically, and says, I'm going to sacrifice my own life because of my husband. And that was just a beautiful display of the Lord in her. She was beautiful, but it was her countenance and her wisdom that emphasized her physical attractiveness. Um, Have you ever thought, have y'all ever looked at somebody from a distance and thought, man, that person is really beautiful? Or maybe, it's, or maybe it's a guy and, you, and you're like, gosh, that guy is so hot. Like, he is really attractive. But then when you kind of get to know them, like you have some conversations and maybe you spend some time with them, and that has changed. Like, somehow they're not quite as attractive. They're not quite as beautiful as you think. And it does matter. Like, what is going on on the inside really does affect the way that we're perceived on the outside. And so... Um, What's underneath makes all the difference in the world. And as we know from scripture in 1 Samuel 16, 7, God is more concerned about the heart than outward appearances. And we hear about that all throughout scripture. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, basically says this about women. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so that's 1 Peter 3. And then you guys probably know this one. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Um, So God is way more concerned about our heart than, than the outside. And honestly, our heart, when that is overflowing it's going to make us attractive to those around us. It is. Um, And added to her charm and wisdom, she was devoted to God. As I just mentioned, can you imagine how difficult it was to be married to such a harsh man, uh, such an ugly man? Um, Yet she was and protected him in a self-sacrificial way. Can you imagine how many times she probably had to act as a peacemaker. Like how many of the neighbors he kind of made angry. How many times she was going around to people going, oh, please forgive him. Like, you know, trying to make up for it. Um, But this honestly gives you a small glimpse into the heartache that often follows, like I just said, in a marriage where you're unequally yoked. Um, And then the last point I want to make about her, really talk about, is that we can never gauge the effect of our words and action upon others, okay? So Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. And so our tongue and what we have to say can bring death or life onto somebody that we speak those to. Um, You know, I become more and more convicted as I become closer and closer with the Lord, of just what an impact our words have on other people. You know, Jesus even says, out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. And sometimes when we say things that are hurtful, that maybe we didn't mean to say, we can ask for forgiveness, but you can never take those words back. 
And so even though you may ask for forgiveness, that person may replay those words over and over again, even if they've forgiven you, because you just can't take those back. And so she was very thoughtful in the words that she used. In Proverbs 15.1, it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And that's exactly what she did in this case. Uh, she really diffused King David um, with her words. And so the last part of this, I just want to talk about um, what we learn about God in this passage. And this is really, the reason we're kind of going through it like this of, about her and about God is one of the best ways you can read scripture is to go through and go, hey, what does this say about man? Or what does this say about woman? And what does this say about God? It gives us a, a great perspective of who we are and who God is. And so that's kind of why we're going through it like this. But about God, so... God loves to use humble people to, di- to display his character and to be his mouthpiece. And that's exactly what he did with Abigail. No, know this, there is nothing good in Abigail apart from God. Okay, so there is nothing good in us apart from the Lord that is in us. Um, you know, in Romans 3.10, we learn that none is righteous, no, not one. There's nothing we can do. Um, and so as a picture of Christ who offered himself as a sacrifice to save us as foolish sinners from the consequences of our actions and what we deserve, which is death. Christ continues to intercede on our behalf. Abigail did the same thing. She interceded self-sacrificially on her husband's behalf. And so one of the ways that we get to display God to other people is by acting in that same manner of being self-sacrificial. In Philippians 2, you know, if you read that passage, it just talks about considering others' interests is more important than our own. And then it goes through and it just talks about how Christ did that for us, even to the point of death on a cross. More than likely, we're not going to have to die for somebody but he does ask us to be self-sacrificial in terms of our own interests. Um, and then the next thing is just that God always takes care of us. And so in Romans twelve nineteen, we are reminded not to seek vengeance ourselves, but rather entrust that to the Lord. And so that is exactly what happened in this story. The Lord is just, y'all. He is righteous, and he sees everything that happens. And, and in this story, he chose to end Nabal's life as a punishment. And so the Lord is ultimate. He just wants us to give him, um, to trust him with those things rather than taking matters into our own hands. Um, and so God showed his faithfulness both through Abigail and even in Nabal's death. And so I think for us just to remember how God wants to use us as broken, imperfect women and men, there's, we got a man in here. Um, and and it just, just knowing that God wants to use us to be a display of his character to the people around us, to our spouses, to our friends, whatever that looks like, he gives us that opportunity to, be, to display Christ to others. Um, and it's so cool when, he, when we get to be a part of that. Um, and so that really is Abigail in a nutshell. I love that story, um, and we'll talk a little bit more. We'll, we'll get some questions from you guys in a little bit. Um, but for now, I want to go on to the next one we're going to talk about is the widow with oil. Um, how many of you guys are doing Join the Journey? Do y'all remember reading this story recently? Yeah, so we're going to be in 2 Kings 4. I believe it was this week that uh, we read through 2 Kings 4 and Join the Journey. And it's kind of, you're probably wondering, you know, why would you pick this one? It's a little bit obscure. 
Um, but we're going to turn to that. Let's turn to that together because we are going to read this one. It's a relatively short passage. Um, 2 Kings 4. We're going to be in 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. Okay. So it says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in your house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all of your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in, and shut the door behind yourself and your behind yourself and your sons and pour into all of these vessels and when one is full set it aside so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons and as she poured they brought the vessels to her and when the vessels were full she said to her son bring me another vessel and he said to her there is not another then the oil stopped flowing she came and told the man of god and he said go Sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. And so um, the one thing I wrote at the end of this paragraph as I read this were the words, more than enough. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, but just how God really does provide for our every need. And oftentimes, he's so gracious to provide more than enough. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background into this passage Um, So in Elisha's day, it was a time of great apostasy in Israel. In other words, they were turning to worship other gods. And um, and, and in this time period, specifically, it was Baal. Um, But honestly, it's much like in the world that we live today. I mean, we have a lot of other gods that we worship. It just doesn't look like golden calves and stuff like that, usually. Um, It could look like money. It could look like relationships. It could look like... um, the things that we have, you know, whatever, it could look like reputation. Like there are a lot of idols that we make for ourselves. Um, And as a whole, the world is unsympathetic to God's people and to the ministry of his word. Um, During that time, it was tough to be a believer uh, and stand for the things of God. And for many believers, it was often hard to even make ends meet. Um, Such was the case for the widow in this passage. She was in debt. And so if you, if you see from the passage that she was talking about her husband was a prophet. And so, you know, again, society didn't make much provision for people of God at that time. And he didn't make any money as a prophet. And so when he passed away, they really had a lot of debt. And what we see in Leviticus 20, 25, 39, I know you guys are going to go out and read Leviticus tonight because it's so exciting. Um, but... What, we, what is important to note here is that in Leviticus 25.39, we see in the Mosaic Law that it allowed for the selling of slaves to pay creditors, uh, which is the case with her two sons. I know it sounds weird of her being like, well, they're going to take my sons to pay my debts, and we're like, that's ludicrous. Like, you can't do that. But at the time, under, that, under the Mosaic law, that was part of the custom. And so, um, so just kind of understanding the context of that day. Um, and also in that day, in the same passage in Leviticus 25, 
Uh, persons and property ending up in the hands of creditors could often be redeemed by a kinsman redeemer. How many of you guys have ever heard the term kinsman redeemer before? A few of you. And, and, and as you're reading through the journey, you may have seen that some. Um, but basically what that allowed for is, um, like if, if this particular widow's husband had passed away and he had a brother, then it basically beseeches the brother then to marry the wife so that she can be provided for. And so they were kind of known as a kinsman redeemer in that sense, like next of kin who could, you know, take and redeem and then even buy back property or um, people or whatever had happened in the process of, of losing them. Um, but in this case, apparently, she, she didn't have a kinsman redeemer. And so she turned to Elisha. And so, and you can imagine, she must have been in complete desperation. She'd lost her husband and was looking at losing her children, and she didn't know what else to do. And so one of the things uh, I want to talk about her is just that um, she was, obviously she was unknown in name in this passage. Like, we, all we know is she was a widow with oil. But, and she was in a place of desperation, but she was faithful. So she had to have some sense of faith. And we know her husband was a prophet, so yes, that's likely. But that she did go to Elisha, and she went to, well, she technically went to God through Elisha, basically, just saying, I really need help. And so she was faithful in that. And also, the number of empty vessels she brought into her house showed her faith. It showed her obedience and submission to God and his promise. So, you know, she didn't even question If Elisha had come to you and said, what do you have in your house? And you said, I have this little jar of oil. I'm literally broke. I have nothing else. And he said, I want you to go get empty vessels and I want you to shut the door and I want you to fill all of those with oil. What would you have done? Like, you probably would have been like, if you're like me, you would have been like, what? What do you mean fill these empty vessels? Have you seen this little thing of oil that I have? There's no way this is going to happen. But you know what? In the passage, we don't read that she questioned him at all. She was like, okay. So her and her sons went to all the neighbors, gathered all these empty vessels, and closed the door and began filling each vessel and setting it aside. She took God and Elisha at their word. Um, if she had only brought a few, it would suggest that she had insufficient faith. And so here's a question I'm going to ask you guys to ponder. Um, is your faith insufficient? And so if God asks you to do something, are you only bringing a little or are you bringing a lot in anticipation of what the Lord's going to do? And so I think that's a really challenging question for me to think through. So note that God didn't tell her how many specific vessels to bring, but Elisha warned her not to take too few, okay? So he didn't tell her how many. He just wanted her to, take, uh, to step out in faith. Uh, but he gave her a hint, don't take too few. And so we are told in James 1.6 to ask in faith without doubting. And so anytime we come to the Lord in prayer for something, um, we always want to ask in faith. I think so many times I come to the Lord going, Lord, would you please bring this person to know you? And like, there's probably a part of me that's like, oh, this person's never going to know you, and how easy it is for me to doubt really the Lord in those circumstances. But he says, come to me boldly without doubting. Um, And so that's exactly what the widow did. She had devout faith um, and and obedience, which then produced a lot of spiritual blessings, as you'll see here. And so really where I want to spend the rest of the time talking about is I just believe this passage says so much about God. Um, 
So though the woman is not identified, I want you guys to hear me, hear me when I say this, because as women, I think sometimes we can feel overlooked. Like we can feel like we're a person in a room, um, maybe unnoticed. Um, we can feel alone. Uh, there's a lot of things I feel like we walk through. But though the woman in this text is not identified, um, and she certainly wasn't on some popularity list, she was poor, very poor, um, she was not unknown to God. And that's very, very important. Each of us are, are personally known and loved by God. Um, I loved, Nisha, I believe you, you mentioned Psalm 139, and honestly, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. A few years ago, I committed to memorizing that because it was something I needed to remind myself of all the time. Um, and so it does a beautiful job of painting how intimately the Lord knows you and loves you. Um, in Psalm 147.4, it says, He counts the number of stars. He gives them names, all of them. And then in Psalm 50.11, it says, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. And so not only does God know who we are, but he knows and cares about all of our needs. And I'm going to give you guys a few um, specific references. You saw that in this story, but I'm going to give you guys a few specific references. In Matthew 6, 26 through 30, it tells us how much he cares about the birds and the lilies. But then it says how much more he cares about us. Um, in Matthew 10, 29 through 31, it says that not a sparrow falls to the ground that he does not know about. Um, The very hairs on our head are all numbered. Therefore, we have nothing to fear, for we are far more valuable than sparrows. And then then Paul reminds us in Philippians 4.19 that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So God is faithful to us, and he wants to provide for us, and he wants us to know that he sees every need that we have. Um, The third thing is that God is faithful to answer our prayers and to provide what we need. So keeping in mind, again, I I feel like this kind of goes back to what Nietzsche was talking about earlier, that sometimes what we think we need is not necessarily what the Lord thinks we need in that moment, okay? So, but we need to pray in faith anyway. It's perfectly acceptable to go, to go before the Lord and go, Lord, here are my desires, but what did Christ do? Not my will, but yours. Lord, here are my desires. Here's what I want, but not my will, but yours. Um, and so we just have to understand that God knows better what we need than what we do. Um, John fourteen thirteen reminds us, and whatever you ask, ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And it says, Matthew twenty one twenty two. and all things you ask in prayer, believing that you shall receive. And then another v- reference is John fifteen seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Um, So as in this story, as in this story and many others in Scripture, as well as in our own lives, God loves to show off. Right now, where you're sitting, if you can think of a time, I'd love for you to bring up a time in your mind where the Lord has abundantly provided more than you ever thought he would in a certain situation. I want you to think about that. 
And it could be, it doesn't have to be like huge. I mean, it could be something what you would say, well, that's kind of small, but where God went above and beyond. Just think about that for a minute. God loves to show off and provide more than enough. He loves to give us more than all that we can ask or imagine. Um, In Romans 8.32, it tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Um, Matthew 7.11 says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So God knows all of our needs completely, and he cares about them so personally. Um, But our most fundamental need is to come to him in faith. But with empty vessels that he might multiply our lives according to his purpose. We are vessels, right? So in the story with those vessels, we are his vessel. Um, And let's not limit our loving and gracious God by our lack of faith and obedience to him. He's the one who is able to do super abundantly above all that we ask or think. But he has promised um, that in due season, in his own timing, according to his perfect understanding. You know, so actually, we weren't planning to do this, but is there one of you that just like in a sentence could tell me, uh, would be willing to share an instance where God provided abundantly more than all you could have asked? Okay, I'm going to get really close to you so you can speak into my mic. Oh, I just <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. My name is Lauren, and um, in, sorry, in 2010, um, the Lord kind of captured my heart. Oh, sorry. No, it's fine. Um, and I didn't have a college to go to. I thought he was calling me to Dallas Baptist University. Um, why wouldn't he want me to be surrounded by believers? Um, and the Lord kind of stripped me from that and was like, walk with me, get up, go. Um, I didn't have a college to go to, and uh, three days before classes started, I started to go to TWU and found out all my professors were believers, and half of the people in my classes um, knew Christ, and I was just surrounded by a bunch of women who built me up during that time, and it was awesome. Awesome. That's so great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry guys in the back. Y'all are probably mad at me right now. <laughs> um, it doesn't like it when we get out in front of the speakers. That's why it starts doing that. But anyway, thank you for sharing that story. I think that's, I love, it's so encouraging for me to be reminded and just hear. Um, do we have one more story that somebody would, you know, briefly like to share? Maybe with a real mic this time? Anybody? Who? Oh. Just real briefly. Hi, I'm Barbara. And my story is about I was born with a disease that got too much iron in the bloodstream. And a month after my mother passed away, I was not from drinking, but from having too much iron. And I've been praying about how could I get a new liver, what's going on. And God finally made it abundant that I could go to San Antonio and that Parkland and San Antonio and Medicaid would all pay for the liver, which is over $100,000. If I stayed here, I'd have to pay a third of that to have it done. And so... Sometime in the future, I'm going to get a brand new liver, go down and live in San Antonio for six months, and be back all healthy and well again.
God is so good. And you know what? We still have a God who heals physical ailments, but we have a God who heals so much more than that. Um, He heals our heart. And so um, the last Old Testament woman we're going to talk about um, here, and then we're going to go to a few in the New Testament, is Gomer. And Gomer is... um, Really, you'd have to read the entire book of Hosea um, to, to really understand Gomer. But she's going to be the one woman. Um, we'd actually talked about having red lights up here for this one because she's the one woman who I really can't tell you anything redeeming about, okay? <laughs> so she's kind of the bad girl. And we could have spoken of a lot of them. There's quite a few of them in Scripture. Um, but there is still stuff to learn about the bad girls of the Bible, And so I'm going to share this story just a little bit different than what we've talked about the other ones because, like I said, it encompasses an entire book in the Bible and the book of Hosea. And before I share specifics about her, um, I need to give you a little bit of background first. The book of Hosea is really interesting. Um, It was written by the prophet Hosea. It was God's message to uh, the people of Israel through the prophet Hosea. Um, And God used this particular book and used Hosea um, as an example. And so he demonstrated his message through Hosea's marriage to Gomer. And so this is, you're going to see that this is very interesting. Um, He used it, he used Hosea and Gomer's marriage as an object lesson to show how how Israel had sinned against him by following other gods and how God remains faithful even when his people don't. Uh, So Hosea is really a beautiful story. In chapter 1, verse 2, God told Hosea, here's what I want you to do, man of God, who hears my voice and is speaking to Israel. I want you to go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea obeyed the Lord and married Gomer. Why in the world would God tell Hosea to go marry a promiscuous woman? It's crazy. Now, what I will tell you is commentators have different views as to whether she was actually promiscuous or a prostitute before um, Hosea married her, or if it was just kind of a prophetic uh, vision into what would happen. But in any case, we know that Hosea knew that his wife was going to be unfaithful. And so um, he did what the Lord asked him to do. We know that after, uh, that after they were married, they had three children. Uh, we know that after they had three children, Gomer left to live with another man. Now, there is some speculation as to whether you could read uh, messages from commentators. Some will say that after the first child, the second and third ch- child children were illegitimate, that they weren't actually Hosea's. Um, there's a lot in this text that would give you indication of just unfaithfulness after unfaithfulness after unfaithfulness. Um, but in any case, she went to live with another man. God then gave Hosea another unbelievable command in chapter 3, verse 1. God, um, he said, Go and show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. So Hosea obeyed again, and he went and bought back his wife with 15 shekels of silver and some barley. Okay, does this shock you guys at all? 
I'm like, okay, so he married a prostitute because God told him to, or a promiscuous woman, and then she fulfilled that prophecy, and then God said, I want you to go and bring her back, buy her back, and be married, you know, continue in union with her, be reconciled with her. That's a really hard thing, and how could this be, and why would God ask Hosea to do such a thing? You see, this was a story that God was trying to display to his, to his children, Israel. And so as you think of the story of Hosea and Gomer, think, Gomer are the, is the Israelites, and Hosea is God. And so as you see this picture of their marriage, as their, of their relationship unfold, think about it in those terms, because that's exactly why this story is in there. Um, it is because this undying love in spite of Gomer's unfaithfulness, was a display of God's love for his idolatrous people, Israel. You see, Gomer, like Israel, pursued pleasure, immediate gratification. She was looking for life in other things. In Gomer's case, you could say she was looking for life in men. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands in here, because we're mostly a group of women in here, But I know that one of the struggles that we have as women in general is looking for life in men or looking for life in relationships, looking for life um, in affirmation from people. Um, And this is, honestly, we could look at Gomer and criticize her, but I mean, there's all a little bit of Gomer in all of us because we are sinners. And even though Gomer and Israel continued in unfaithfulness, God... Uh, still spoke passionately about his love for him, love for Israel throughout this book. So if you were to read through it, you would see multiple references where God is just like, you guys don't get it. You are so hard-hearted, so unfaithful, but how I love you. And you see God proclaiming that over and over and over again. Um, and so, and we know from the New Testament like Hosea did for Gomer. Now think about this, guys. Just like Hosea paid 15 shekels for his bride, God also bought back Israel through his son, Jesus Christ. And he bought all of us, right? So we were bought at a really high price. Um, God saw us, and he saw Gomer, and he said, my gosh, like you sinful hard-hearted, unfaithful people, how much I love you and I want to be in relationship with you. And I know that because I'm a just God and you are sinful, I cannot be in relationship with you, but I want to. And the only solution is through death, you know, as the payment for your sin. And so what I'm going to do, because I love you, because I'm a just God, I'm going to let those two things come together on the cross in his son, Jesus Christ, uh, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that Christ would die for our sins and we didn't have to, and then we could have a relationship with God and be reconciled just like uh, Gomer and Hosea. It's a beautiful picture of what is yet to come, and at this time, it had not happened, uh, which is why it's so cool. So there are a couple of things I want us to talk about um, and how this shows us some characteristics about God. So God unites himself through his son Jesus with the unholy, 
He unites himself with us as sinners in order to make us holy. And so if you think about uh, the command that uh, Hosea was given to Mary Gomer, so it was the holy, which is Hosea, he's a prophet of the Lord, with the unholy, which was Gomer, the prostitute. And so he delights to unite himself with the unholy, with us sinners. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The second thing we learn is that through Christ, uh, God suffered over the sin of his people. Have y'all seen The Passion of the Christ? Raise your hand if you've seen that movie. Like, I, I saw it in the theater the first time, and I thought, I'm never, ever, ever going to watch that movie again, because it was so hard to watch. And that was however many years ago. And y'all, I saw it this past... Um, Easter, I I thought, you know, I really want to get my heart back in a place of worship. And I saw that movie again and thought, you know what? It was a little too graphic. They shouldn't be showing all that stuff. And yet, as I read scripture, it's true. Like, how marred he was and how it was hard to even distinguish, you know, his features because he was so beaten and he was so bloodied. And so he... He suffered for our sins. God suffers over the sins of his people. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then the last point I want to make is just that he stopped at nothing to bring us back into right relationship with him. And so just as in the story of Hosea and Gomer, um... Gomer, a sinner, a prostitute, like us in so many ways. Uh, Our sin may not be exactly the same, but in God's eyes, a sin is a sin. And so here she is, a woman who is so undeserving, and yet God stopped at nothing to bring her back into relationship with him. And so Hosea stopped at nothing to bring her back into relationship with him. And so... The one thing I want you to know out of this particular story is how much God loves you in spite of what may be going on in your own heart right now, whatever sin struggle you may be working through, is that God loves you and he stops at nothing to bring you back into relationship with him. So we're going to go on into the New Testament and Rachel's going to come back up for a bit. Well, hey. Um, so that was amazing. And just want to do just a, a very brief recap of the Old Testament women. They're, um, you know, pretty awesome. So we've got the boldness of Deborah, the way that God saw Hannah. We have the combination of the boldness of Deborah and the humility of Hannah and Abigail. We have um, the way that the Lord deals in abundance with us with the widow with the oil, and then in Gomer that the Lord is not going to stop at anything to rescue his people. And that's a really good lead into who I'm going to talk about first. Your slides go in one order, and I decided at about 925 to change the order. So we're going to talk first about Anna in the New Testament, um, and then we're going to talk about um, the hemorrhaging woman. And then Clarissa will come back up and, and finish us up for the day. Um, so just some things about Anna. You can find her story in 
uh, Luke 2, 22 through 29. Now, there's not a whole lot about Anna, um, but one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Anna is because of her incredible faithfulness, but also because just like Deborah, she's listed as a prophetess in the Bible. And like I said before, there were only 10 that were listed, five in the Old Testament, five in the New Testament. And the important thing, the distinguishing factor about the New Testament and about Anna in that is that uh, five prophetesses were listed in the New Testament. Four of them were only given the name that they were the daughters of one dude. Okay, so they were the, they, that's, that's how they're named. So this is the only named prophetess in the New Testament. Um, and like, while I appreciate the, that this one dude raised these incredibly awesome holy daughters, that they were all prophets of the Lord, um, I still think that it's important to talk about Anna. So in this story, um, there's this... Uh, Anna is a lady who is very old. Actually, um, when you look at the, the original Greek of Luke 2.36, it says she was very old in her many days. So it's not enough to say, like, she's just very old. Like, this is kind of adding, like, she's very old. No, for real. She's really old. Okay, so um, like, I love that the, there's, like, this exclamation point, like, the lady's old, y'all. All right, she's old. And so we see this about, about Anna. And so her story is that she was um, a virgin until she was married. She was married for seven years. Her husband died, and then she stayed in the temple fasting and praying um, for 84 years. And there's some discrepancy there about whether or not she was 84 years in the temple or whether her whole life was 84 years. But for however long, she's been a widow for a really long time. She's been fasting and praying in the temple for a really long time. And in the context of this, we see that with Anna, when she then became a widow, she didn't go back to her tribe, which is Asher. She actually stayed in the temple. So she was trusting in the Lord for all of her provision for a really long time, right? Like she's very old. God knew what he was doing and trusted, and she trusted that he would provide for her in the temple. Um, and so there's this dude uh, also in the temple. There, there's not, they don't necessarily show any relationship, although I'm sure that they would have known one another, named Simeon. And Simeon was um, a guy that um, was also faithfully waiting for the Messiah. And he actually felt that the Lord had told him that he would see the Messiah before he died. And so Jesus comes into the scene here. He's born. And uh, Mary and Joseph come and they present Jesus in the temple. And so Simeon walks up to them and says, all right, this is him. And as if Mary and Joseph needed one more weird thing to happen, like like let's walk through there. <laughs> Um, there's an angel of the Lord that says, hey, I know that you're a virgin, but surprise, you're pregnant. And then she goes and she has um, Jesus um, in a stable. She has to deliver him by herself. Can't even begin to fathom that. And then she, then they walk into the temple and they're greeted by this old dude. And he's like, that's the one. That's the one. I can die in peace. And you're like, thank you? Like, I can just imagine you're like, okay, so I'm, I'm, I imagine that it's great that you can recognize that he's the one, but like, I'm sorry that you have to die now, but that's not really the attitude of Simeon. Simeon's like, okay, I can rest in peace. And as he is verifying that Jesus is the Messiah, Anna walks up and it says that she's a prophetess. So again, she's a faithful messenger of the Lord. She walks up and um, then she starts to go and proclaim that the Messiah is there. It tells, it tells us that she actually goes and she starts to tell people, this is him, this is the Messiah. And so what we see about her is that this girl is patient. She is long-suffering. She is faithfully waiting for, and this, the Luke passage says that she was waiting for the redemption of Israel. And Clarissa just talked a lot about how, the, how Jesus came in and redeemed us. And so she's waiting for the person who is going to redeem Israel, who is going to be their hope for salvation. And she sees that in this baby. Like I, the, 
um, amount of reliance on the Holy Spirit that she had to have had at that time. It actually talks, it says that she did hear from the Holy Spirit at this time. The amount of reliance on him that she could walk up, see his face, hear Simeon overhear kind of their conversation, and then go start to tell people in the temple that he's here, he's here, this is the one that we're waiting for. Like, I pray that I would have that same ability to hear the Holy Spirit and to pay attention and to be obedient to his nudgings. Um, and I, I just confess that that's not always the case. I want my own way, the way that um, Nish talked earlier. So um, what we see about her is just that she is faithful to the Lord. I mean, Homegirl was there for a very, very very long time. She was very old in her many days. Um, Again, we see that women, even in leadership, can be helpers to men. God is faithful even in the darkest of days. There would have been a long time here that that Jewish people were under oppression and and, um, just were hoping for and awaiting this Messiah, and she just gets to see him, and I can't even fathom how great that would have been, and there's the feeling of, oh my goodness, like, He's here. You can just imagine. She would have just been really excited. Um, There's no mention um, of her meeting her impending death, but based on she's very old in her many days, you can imagine that she um, probably went to be with the Lord pretty soon after that. So um, that's Anna. She's really, really brief. Um, But man, like, can we just agree that we would be long-suffering the way that Anna was and that we would be listening and dependent on the Holy Spirit the way that she was. Um, just th- the ability to hear through her desires and um, that she's fasting and praying. Um, one uh, commentator that I read said that God reveals his secret purposes in history to humble servants who continually live in his presence. And that is a really good summary of what Anna did. She just continually lived in the presence of the Lord. Um, so from that, we're going to go back now and talk about the hemorrhaging woman. So your notes kind of go out of order. I'm really sorry about that. That's totally my fault. So hemorrhaging woman, um, get a little worked up about the hemorrhaging woman. I love this woman. Like if, uh, we did get to pick kind of who we wanted to talk about and I was like, that's mine. She's mine. I love this story. Um, so it's found in Mark. The one I'm going to talk about, it's actually found in two Gospels, Matthew and Mark. The one I'm going to talk mostly from is the Mark passage, Mark 21 through 30, or Mark 5, excuse me, verses 21 through 35. Um, so to set the scene here, Jesus is coming back um, from another town, and he's coming into the Sea of Galilee. And when he uh, gets onto the land, um, he is met by a leader of the church. Now, um, to give you guys a little bit of context, since we're moving from Old Testament to New Testament, um, the leaders of the church at that time didn't like Jesus very much. Like, they weren't really a fan of his for a couple of reasons. One is that they were, Jesus was kind of stealing their thunder, right? Like, he's coming in and he's saying, okay, so they're telling you one way, but I'm going to tell you this way, and they're taking his popularity, they're taking his... Uh, they're taking the the leader's popularity, they're taking their people, and they're saying, okay, now he's saying, don't do it this way, or I'm going to fulfill that way, and so let's start to live um, under the law of grace instead of the law of Moses. And so um, they just didn't, they weren't necessarily fans of him. There are actually lots of verses in Mark that talk about the murderous intents of the heart of these people, these church leaders. And so it's not really clear as to whether or not Jairus was one who was like, let's murder him so that we can get our popularity back, which like, ouch, that's harsh. Um, or whether he was just someone who was faithfully leading in his church and, and was kind of keeping his head down and, and bearing with it. But he was, a, he was a leader of the church. And no matter whether he was really um, outspoken about his hatred for Jesus or whether he was just someone who's seen, there's, what he does is remarkable. So Jesus comes in and Jairus has a little girl at home that is sick. 
And he knows that God, Jairus knows that Jesus is his daughter's only hope to get better. Um, and, that, and so Jairus goes, and as soon as Jesus gets off that boat, Jairus throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And he says, um, my daughter is sick. Can you please come and can you heal her? And at that point, there's going to be a whole bunch of people waiting for Jesus. And so there's this huge group of people. Jairus is right at the front of them. And Jesus says, yeah, let's go. And so they're having to kind of steer through. Like if you can imagine, like the only thing, the only context I have for this is like kind of like a paparazzi type of a mentality. Like we've got to get near him. We've got to touch him. We've got to be with him. And so if you can imagine kind of redirecting this whole throng of people, that's what Jesus and Jairus are going to go do. So there's all these people, and there's all these um, people wanting to get a piece of Jesus, wanting to touch Jesus, want to talk to him. And, and Jesus is trying then to, to make way to go to Jairus' house and say and, and heal this little girl. And so um, they're in this crowd of people, and along comes this woman. And this woman, to give you some background on her, she's been hemorrhaging. So she's been having a menstrual period for 12 years. Um, and you can imagine just the despair there, like we would feel in our own day of just like wanting answers and seeking and trying to figure out what's going on there. But in her day, it would have been a completely different thing. So when you're on your menstrual cycle in the Old Testament, she falls under the rules of Leviticus 15 that says that she would have been unclean. Now, what that means um, for her is that she's unclean, but she would have been kind of seen as an outcast of society. She could no longer live in her home because then everything in her home for whoever else was living there would have been unclean. So like everything that she sat on would have been unclean and would have had to have been made ritually clean every time she didn't sit there anymore for anybody else to come and sit on it. Um, and so she really had to go and live somewhere else in an outcast, like in a separate place of, of like you can think of people who are lepers and people who just were ceremonially unclean she would have had to have been um, booted out of her house and she would have had to have lived somewhere else. So not only is that the pain associated and, and just the questions that she would have had about her own health, she probably would have been anemic. She would have been weakened. And then, but society would have seen her as someone who um, was unfavorable that they couldn't touch because when you touch somebody that was ceremonially unclean, you too were unclean. You couldn't touch a dead body. You couldn't sit where they sat. You couldn't, there were all these things about that made you ceremonially unclean. And so this woman would have, um, I mean, for 12 years, y'all, she would have had to have lived somewhere else, not in her home. And you can just imagine kind of her despair then. Um, yes, Jairus's situation is urgent. His daughter is about to die. But her despair, um, if you can just kind of put yourself in that place, it would have felt very, very hopeless. There's actually a verse um, in Mark um, on t- verse 26, 5, 526, it said that she spent all her money on doctors of that day and to no avail. And actually that what they gave her because they didn't know what about the human body, what they know now actually was making her worse. And so, um, this woman has, um, she is an outcast of society. She can't live with her people. She has no money because she spent it all on doctors and answers. And, um, so that's this woman in this crowd. And so Jesus is going towards to Jairus's house and this woman comes up behind him and she doesn't say anything to him. And she said, in in her mind, though, what she's thinking is, if I can just touch the hem of his cloak, that would be enough for me to be healed. And the faith there, y'all, I mean, like, that's mind-blowing to me. Like, I I still think that I pray to the Lord and I say, well, I'm not really sure if you want to do this, but if it be your will, and I leave it, and I, I, when I, when I say that I leave, I, 
I put the ball all in God's court, it's like, it's kind of a halfway ask. It's like, well, if it be your will, but I'm not really sure you're going to, so I'm not really believing in faith. The faith of this woman is not that. She recognizes that Jesus has the power and the ability to heal her to the point where she says, if I can only touch the hem of his garment. There were, there were these little tassels on the hem of their garment to show that they were in leadership in the church to, to recognize them, to separate them out as somebody who was um, of position in the church. Jesus would have had the one of a rabbi. And so um, she just says, if I can just touch those little tassels, then I know that just the, tass- the power in those tassels will be enough to heal what I have been dealing with for 12 years and what no man has been able to figure out. Y'all, that's faith. That's incredible. And so she goes up. You can imagine that she's kind of jostled by the crowd and and just in her weakened state, she's unclean and she doesn't even care that she's making everyone else who touches her at this point unclean. She does not care. She is, her eyes are wholly fixed on Jesus. And she says, okay, I'm gonna go and I'm I'm just gonna touch his cloak. And so Jesus is being jostled by the crowd too. Like if you can imagine that kind of paparazzi mentality, everybody's trying to get to him. So Jesus is being jostled too. And um, when she touches his cloak, he feels power leave him. And he says, like you can just kind of imagine the scene, like it's almost comical when you think about it. If I were a disciple, I probably would have been like, all right, you're losing it, Jesus. So he stops, he stops everybody with him. And you can imagine Jairus is over like, why are you stopping? My daughter is about to die. Like, why are you stopping? There's an urgency here, you know, like Jairus is like, Jesus, she might be dead already. I don't even know. And so um, just this, there's this, dude that he has agreed to help that is very urgently seeking for the Lord to move quickly. And so Jesus just says, he stops in the midst of this and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, everyone? Like, like have, do you see what's happening here? Like everyone is touching you. And, um, and, and the woman though, knowing at the time that she touched his cloak that she was made well, she felt the difference in her body. She knew that she was no longer bleeding. She knew that her body had been made whole. Like, can you imagine the emotions that she's going through? Like she went from being a complete outcast to being made well, just with one touch of his garment. And so in that, Jesus turns around and she's like, I mean, can you just imagine like you've, it's kind of like you've been caught doing something, but you're not really sorry because it's a really good thing that's been done. And you're just, I mean, can you just imagine her just being like, oh, and y'all, Jesus had to have known that it was her. He had to have known that it was her, but he doesn't then expose her. He gives her the opportunity to say, who touched me? He gives her the opportunity to voluntarily say, it was me. He doesn't expose her. He's not looking to embarrass you or to, or, to, or to take away your dignity. What he does actually is the opposite of that. He restores her dignity. He restores her back to a right place in society, in her family, in the church, in, in the body of Christ. He restores her to that. He doesn't just restore her physically. Yes, he does restore her physically. We see that it actually says that her, the blood stopped the very moment that she touched his garment. It's not magic in that, though, because what the Lord says then, when he, when he goes back and he says, who touched me? And she says, she falls at his feet. She knows she's got it. She's got to come forward. She falls at his feet, and she tells him what happened. And actually, none of her words are recorded in this Mark passage. So she doesn't actually ever say verbally anything that was recorded in this Mark passage, because what the Lord is trying to tell us now reading this is that her heart was what was most important. And the words that Jesus speaks to her are remarkable Y'all don't miss this. He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
And the tie-in between what Jairus is experiencing and what this woman is experiencing is really impactful. This is the only time in the Bible that Jesus ever called a woman daughter. It's the only time. Now we see in the rest of the New Testament that we are all adopted as sons and daughters, those of us who aren't Jewish, myself included, I'm not Jewish, yet I get to be a partaker and I get to sit in heaven with Christ whenever I die. But this is the only recorded time where Jesus called someone daughter. And it's almost like he's saying, Jairus, I know that you're there. I know that your daughter is in pain. I know that she's sick. I have heard you. I understand the urgency of this situation. But this woman is my daughter. She is mine. In the exact same way that you feel about your daughter, the pain and suffering that she is going through, my daughter is going through that now. And I am going to restore her. I will restore your daughter too. You don't know that yet, but I will. I will restore your daughter too. But I'm going to lift this woman's head. I'm going to restore her to a place of dignity and of uprightness in her society so that she can no longer be the woman who bleeds, but so that she can be the woman who was delivered and who was restored and who was redeemed by me from this illness, but also from being an outcast of society. And the power of that moment and the recognition that Jesus gives this woman says, women have an equal standing here. I'm going to treat you, Jairus. I will answer you, but I'm going to give pause and give dignity to this woman who wasted everything. She risked everything to be here just to touch my garment because she knew that I could heal her. She recognized the power that I had. She recognized who I was. And she knows now whose she is. And so the happy ending to the story is that then the woman goes away and she's going to go and she's going to get to go back to the temple and say, I'm clean. The Lord has made me clean. And she's going to get to be restored. And that is amazing. That woman was absolutely hopeless. She was weak. She was bleeding. She had no hope in her future that she would ever get to go back to her people. And because of one touch of Jesus' garment, she did. So the rest of the story is that um, God then looks at Jairus and he says, do not fear, only believe. And then they go and they get word while they're going to Jairus' house that the daughter has actually passed away. And Jesus still is walking. He's like, I mean, this doesn't stop me at all. Like, this doesn't change anything. Let's go. And he goes, and these people that are following, I'm sure not necessarily that they were understanding who Jesus was and that they, I don't think that they really understood that he was the Messiah, but they're following maybe even just to see more miracles. And Jesus then goes in and he says, you guys wait out here. This is a moment with Jairus, his wife, and the girl. And he goes in and he says, oh, she's not dead. She's sleeping. But they have been met by people. There are mourners outside. This girl is dead. Okay, like she's not just sleeping. But the point he makes here is, When I'm in the room, it's just like she's sleeping. And he says, daughter, get up. And she gets up and she walks. So again, restores her to full health. But just the contrast between, Jairus, I understand that you're passionate about your daughter. I understand that she needs to be healed. And it doesn't matter if she's alive or dead when I get there. I'm going to stop and give this hemorrhaging woman the dignity that she deserves. So what can we learn from her? We can learn that we are his daughter we can see that he wants to restore our dignity. He wants to take time with us. He hears what we're saying before we even mention the words. He knows what we need. 
and he is anxious to give us those things. Now, it's not like, like I can go, again, the rabbit's foot. I can't go and I can't rub some tassel of Jesus and instantly be healed of any ailment that I have. That's not, that's not the picture here. The picture here is that she believed in faith to the point where she was willing. Jesus very well as a Jewish man and rabbi in that day could have turned around and he could have disciplined her. He could have, um, I'm not sure that necessarily that she could have been stoned, but he very well could have said, you're not supposed to be here. He could have been harsh with her. He could have exposed her in front of everyone and embarrassed and shamed her. But the dignity that he gives her is is something that we should not miss. That when we come humbly before the Lord and say, I believe that you can do this for me, um, if it be your will, not my will, but what your will be done. And, and, and Jesus said, your faith has made you well. The faith that drove you to be in the midst of these crowds when you are weak and when you are unclean and when you are in probably most likely a lot of pain, that faith, the belief that you have in me that I can is what's made you well. Um, that God is just gracious with his tender mercies. And then the last thing that I want to point out is that for Jairus, it was a huge risk for him to, to fall down his feet. I mean, I've, I've kind of given Jairus like a bad rap here, like, but he really, he really did. He risked a lot of his prestige and his position in society to throw himself at the feet of Jesus because they didn't, these people didn't get along. And so, um, to humbly ask Jesus to come and to heal his daughter was no small thing. And God honors that big ask, but he also honors the big ask of the woman that seemed kind of like a small ask because she didn't go in front of him and, and throw herself down and say, can you heal me too? You know, like just the faith that she went from behind, just knowing that just this little bit of him was enough to heal her big thing. And so God is going to honor the big ask and God is going to honor the small ask. And we see just that, um, impartiality to men and women there and how he he met both needs it's not like he looked at him and said well you're a man so I've got to meet your need but you're a woman you're just a helper you know like so um we see that God um the beautiful imagery of a God who says you are not I, I don't look at who you are I look at your need, and I look at your faith, and I love you all the same. So with that, Clarissa is going to come up and finish this up and talk about the woman of sin. So the beauty of that story, which I love as well, uh, you're going to see some similarities in this last story that we're going to talk about um, is the woman of sin or the woman with the alabaster box. And specifically, it's the one from Luke uh, chapter 7. If you guys want to turn there, Luke chapter 7, um, and it's verses 36 through 50. And we won't read all of them because they would take quite a bit of time. Um, But we're just going to kind of go through this story with you guys. Um, Again, you're going to see a lot of similarities here with the hemorrhaging woman, and, and I hope it's encouraging so in this particular story, uh, Jesus was invited in to eat at a Pharisee's house, and his name was Simon. Um, a woman of the city, is what the Bible says, who was, well known, uh, who was a well-known sinner, basically, showed up with an alabaster flask. Um, note, kind of side note on this, it wasn't necessarily that unusual that she would be there because when a rabbi came to a house, it was customary that others actually came in to listen to the conversations. So kind of unlike today where I feel like, 
you know, you, you don't come into someone's home unless you're invited. And so you would never, people from, you know, down the street would never just randomly walk in more than likely. Um, but in this day, if they knew a rabbi was going to be in a house, um, they would just come in and listen to the conversation. So the fact that she was there wasn't that unusual. Um, but w- what was not customary is that she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And uh, she began wetting his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. This was very unusual. Again, she was a well-known sinner, so everyone there knew who she was, um, even though we don't, we don't know the name of this woman. I mean, I think there have been some thoughts as to, uh, as to who it could be, but I think a lot of people would say she's just an unknown woman, um, but that she was a, a, a sinner. And so here's what I want you to know about her. So she took down her hair, and at the time, uh, women's hair was one of their most treasured possessions. It was, it was the most um, adorning thing of her body. And at the time, women wore their hair up because that's what was appropriate. And so when this woman let down her hair and she went to wipe his feet, because there was no towel, and so she went to wipe his feet with her hair, it was scandalous, Okay, so this is what you need to understand is I read a commentary that literally said it would be like a woman being topless in public. I know, isn't that crazy? Um, And so, but that was not this woman's intent. They would have seen it as very inappropriate, very sexual in nature, which in some ways kind of goes along with this woman, you know, and, and just her sin that everybody knew her as. But really, Ultimately, for her, it was a form of worship. And there was no towel there. He needed his feet dried, so she let her hair down. It was her offering everything that she had at his feet. Um, She then anointed Jesus' feet with perfume. This was worship. Y'all, this was probably her most treasured possession was this little flask of perfume in an alabaster box. Um, Some might would see this as, you know, basically the tool that she used um, in in prostitution, you know, to make herself smell beautiful, to be with all of these men. This was kind of her livelihood, uh, but she poured it out on Jesus' feet. So Simon, the Pharisees, criticized Jesus in his heart. So he didn't actually say anything outwardly, but he's like, man, this, this man must not be a prophet because he doesn't have any idea who this woman is that just touched him, that is touching his feet. It's disgusting. Uh, it's repulsive. Um, and so, but Jesus, knowing what Simon was thinking, this is what scripture says, he knows what Simon was thinking. He began sharing a parable with Jesus. I love Jesus. Like he never, um, in scripture, instead of going, you know what, you are wrong for thinking that. I can't believe you would think that. And, you know, there's a part of me that I think it would be fun if I knew what somebody was thinking to kind of call them out on it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but Jesus doesn't do that. Again, he is so graceful and kind in the way that he admonishes. So he begins to share a parable about two debtors. And he's like, you know, let's say there was one debtor who owed a smaller sum of money and another debtor who owed a larger sum of money. Um, and then the money lender, realizing that they couldn't p- repay either, either debt, canceled the debt. And so Jesus then asked Simon, which of them uh, would love the money lender more? The one with less debt or the one with more debt? To which Simon correctly responded, the one with more debt. And, and the reason why is because more debt was canceled. 
So Jesus then, at that moment, I think this is important in the passage, he turned, so at this point, the woman is at his back, right? He turned at this moment from Simon to the woman, and he, at this point, he's looking at her, and he's talking to Simon, and he said, he basically is like, hey, Simon, you gave me no water with which to wash my feet when I came in. This was customary of the day that you provided women, I mean, you provided your guests a bowl of water to wash their feet before they ate. It's kind of like washing your hands, but their feet were so dirty. I mean, it was just part of the custom at the time. Um, and he said, so you gave me no water with which to wash my feet, but this woman has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And he said, you know, Simon, you've basically given me no, uh, none of the common courtesies of the day. You didn't kiss my cheek, as was, as was customary. You didn't even anoint my head with oil. Again, this was customary in the, in the day. And yet she has kissed his feet, the most filthy part of him. And she anointed them with perfume, which was even more valuable than oil. And so um, then Jesus shared at that time with Simon that because of her faith, she was forgiven. And of course, the people in that time were like, who are you to forgive sins? Remember, they're at this point thinking he's not even a prophet. Um, And so, um, and and he goes on to say, um, and because she's been forgiven much, she loves much. This is why this woman has laid herself down at his feet. She's weeping. She's... Um, anointing his feet with perfume, she recognizes um, the beauty of Jesus as her Savior and who he is and what he's done for her. And she's loving much because she has been forgiven much. And yet Simon, who thought he had little to be forgiven for, loves little. Um, And so then Jesus looks at this woman in the presence of everyone and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so I love this passage. Again, like the woman uh, with bleeding, this woman had no dignity. Um, She was um, a sinner of all sinners. And I would tell you personally for uh, me and and part of my story, I, I have been married for 10 years before and went through a divorce in 2008. There was a lot of really terrible stuff um, that kind of happened in the midst of that. But one of, one of mine was I began looking for um, affirmation outside of my marriage and had an affair. And as I can just tell you guys what it feels like firsthand to be, to feel like the sinners of all sinners, like the scarlet letter. Um, and just to know that, that Jesus... Um, as long as we are uh, just humble and contrite and come before him, that he is opening his arms to us and he wants to redeem us. He wants to restore us like he did the woman of bleeding and like he does this woman as well. Um, It's such a beautiful story. And so a couple of points just to take away from this story uh, to make it even a little more personal is that... um, So Mary did uh, display a humble and contrite heart. And y'all, there are so many scriptures throughout um, both the Old and the New Testament um, where it just talks about how um, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And like the Lord loves that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5, 3. And Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Um. And so, 
he promises over and over again to hear the cries of the humble and the contrite before him. And that's exactly what, and that's exactly what this woman was. Um, she knew her need for the Savior and fully surrendered to him. There is nothing the Lord won't take from you if you fully surrender that to him. Nothing. There's nothing too difficult, nothing um, past the point of return that the Lord can't take. She knew her need for the Savior and fully surrendered to him. Uh, And the woman's desire to see and to worship Jesus was greater than her fear of these guests. She probably suffered a lot of scorn, Um, just like the woman with with the bleeding. Like, you know, everybody's like, oh my gosh, you can't touch her. She's unclean. And like this woman was experiencing, don't talk to her. Don't you know she's this woman? And um, all of the scorn and all of the whispers and all of the, oh my gosh, did you see that? Um, It was a high price to pay but it was nothing in comparison to what she knew Jesus could do for her. So about God, God loves the sinner. Just a few chapters back in Luke 5, the Pharisees were asking Jesus why he ate and drank with sinners. And these were his words. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, Honestly, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save us as sinners. Jesus is never more approachable than he is to sinners. Um, In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So he he would have never told uh, the woman of bleeding, he would have never told the woman of sin, Get away from me, because he says, I will not cast them out. Um, And so as we discussed in the scriptures earlier, God forgives and draws near to those with a broken and contrite heart. He saves those who have faith. And so we know uh, from the New Testament, John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And John 5.24 says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And then finally, he gives peace to those who know him. So John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in John sixteen thirty three, he said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, And so I love that story, very personally love that story, but just love the story of um, how much Jesus loves the sinner, um, no matter what that may look like in our lives. And so I'm just going to conclude our whole talk on all of these women with just a couple of points. Um, And I say that there's a few points, but um, I was trying to, I was like, gosh, there's got to be a way I could sum all of this up and like, three words. I I couldn't quite figure it out, so bear with me. One, how does this apply to you, right? God loves you. If there's nothing else, you walk out of here knowing or remembering God loves you. John 3, 16. For God so so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not die but have eternal life. Number two, he knows you intimately and created you perfectly. And so just as all of these women that we talked about are different, 
um, in, in different ways, have different characteristics. Some are more, more bold and courageous. Some are more meek and mild. Though exactly the way that he made you, he intended you to be. He doesn't want you to be something different than what you are. Because as long as you're trying to be something that you're not, it's going to be exhausting for you and everyone that you're around. And you're not going to experience the true freedom and joy that the Lord gives you in being who he created you to be. So know that he knows you intimately and created you perfectly. Um, He has a plan for you. So Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship. Um, the New Living Translation says masterpiece, which I love that picture of, of like an artist. Uh, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he gave us specific gifts. He gave us specific talents. He made us in such a specific way to do good works for his kingdom. And he prepared us for that beforehand. The other thing is that he knows everything that's going on in your life. So whatever it is that's keeping you awake at night or whatever it is that is on your mind the most right now, he knows even without you saying a word to him. And you are incredibly valuable. Remember the scripture I shared with you earlier, Matthew 10, about the sparrow and how God, if a sparrow falls to the ground, God knows about it. And he also knows the numbers of hair on your head and how much more valuable you are than a sparrow. Um, He hears the cries of his children. We see that over and over and over again in all of the stories of these women is that he hears their cries, and he promises to deliver them. So Psalm 34, 17 through 18 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And God will always provide. He always will provide. And oftentimes, more than enough. He is faithful. He will never leave you or forsake you, and you will see this promise over and over again. And I I would challenge you to look over even your own life Uh, just the years of your life, and find a time where God wasn't ultimately faithful. Um, Because he is. He's a faithful God. Um, And then the last point, uh, which sometimes I feel like, I feel like I battle here, that God is good and trustworthy. Okay? God is good and trustworthy. So Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 31, 19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. And then James 1, 17 just tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. So think about this. Any good that you have in your life right now, anything good, Um, even just the food that you have to eat comes from the Father above. So every good and perfect gift. And then the last thing on that is just uh, know in Romans 8, 28, that there's a promise there that he works everything for our good and his glory for those who love him. And so I would tell you that there's not a thing in the world that is going to happen to us that God is not sovereign over and that God is not using it um, for our good and for his glory. And sometimes the pain is hard to understand how he's going to use that in the moment. But he is faithful and he's good and he's trustworthy.
Um, and so just wanted you to know those things. Um, as we've finished up here, is there anybody, we've got 15 minutes, is there anybody that um, is dying to ask a question? Just a second. She's got one. The last what? Verse you gave. Um, the last one on Romans 8.28, James 1.17. Is there anybody else who's dying to ask a question about any of the women we covered or anything else? <laughs> it's being recorded, which is why they're doing it. Oh, that was actually going to be my question. <laughs> um, I have a coworker that I would like to share this with. Is there any way we can, is this going to be online? Yes, it should be. Awesome. So we're, we're recording it. Hopefully we'll have it out online that, so that you can forward that along. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Anybody else? That's okay. Oh, gosh. Good question. Getting her exercise in. These are my steps. I just got a Fitbit, y'all. <laughs> On Gomer, I just wanted to see um, what was her end? Like, was she, did she ever repent? Or what was you know, it doesn't really, it leaves us a little open-ended. We don't necessarily, we know that he bought her back. Um, beyond that, we don't really know. I think a lot of it is just because the picture really is intended for us to see God's love for Israel. And so we know how that ends and that God sends his son to die for Israel and to bring all of us back to him. Um, and we know that by his grace, that we come to repentance, right? And so we can, we can be left to assume that um, the love of Hosea would bring her to repentance, um, but we don't really know. The scripture doesn't really tell us that. Anything else? Okay, so we have a huge favor. We, if you would fill out a quick evaluation for us, um, that would be awesome. And then you're free to go. We'll be hanging around if you want to ask us more questions. Thank you so much for coming and letting us share our passion for women with you. And thank you guys. I'm back in my algebra teaching days. And you guys can just put these on that back table where the notes were. Come on.